Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in Amos chapter 5, and you can turn there, but we won't be there for long. Here's the plan for this evening. In chapter 5 of the book of Amos, we run into the phrase, the day of the Lord. On Sunday mornings, we have been teaching our way through Matthew 24, and so Micah asked me, when are we going to get to the day of the Lord? Will you be teaching on that this week or next week, or when is that going to come up? And I had said, well, it'll be next week, so he had to wait. But I've decided that tonight we're just going to talk about the day of the Lord. That's tonight's topic. So next week we'll actually go through verse by verse through Amos 5. But tonight we're just going to particularly focus on the day of the Lord. And hopefully in that process, uh, tie together some of the bits and pieces that will fit into the Matthew 24 teaching on Sunday. So let's start in Amos chapter 5, verse 16, which says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, and in all the streets they say, Alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning and the professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards there is wailing, because I shall pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. This is a continuation of what we saw last week in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 of Amos, the final threat that God leveled against Israel was to prepare to meet your God. And so now in chapter 5, He's expanding on that and saying that when God comes back, people are going to be saying, alas, alas, it's not going to be a moment of great joy. It's not going to be dancing in the streets and happy tambourines. It's going to be people mourning the farmer whose job it is not necessarily to mourn. He'll be doing the mourning as well as the professional mourners. What that is about is people of high repute wealthy folks in the community. Once they died, their family would actually hire people to be part of the funeral procession to mourn loudly for them, and they would be paid to do it. But he's saying even the professional mourners are going to be in genuine mourning when this happens. So call the farmer to mourning and the professional mournings all the way to lamenting, to lamentation. And in all the vineyards there is wailing because I shall pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. And now he describes it rather poetically and says, it's like when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. In other words, there's really no escape. There's no way out. Or it's like a man who goes home, leans his hand against a wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? 
And then he goes on and says, I hate and I reject your feasts. So at this point in the book of Amos, we see a description of what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord language, as we're going to see tonight, has to do with God meeting out vengeance, retribution, even wrath, sometimes against Israel, sometimes against Israel's enemies. And because the phrase the day of the Lord is used so often by the prophets, there were people in Israel who were looking forward to it, hoping that the day of the Lord was going to come and finally throw off the yoke of their oppressors. And so they were looking forward to the day of the Lord. And Amos is warning them, saying to the Israelites, in the condition you're in and in the state you're in and the kind of uh, rebellion that you are in against the Lord, why are you looking forward to the day of the Lord? It is not going to go good for you. And as we are going to see tonight, the day of the Lord has a purpose. The day of the Lord, just like the time of tribulation, just like the, the trouble that God will bring to Israel, the day of the Lord has a purpose, which is the ultimate restoration of Israel through correcting them and through God pouring out, as I said, vengeance and wrath. We're going to see all of that tonight. Sometimes events in the Bible that are referred to as the day of the Lord are things that have already occurred in history. I'll say that again to make it more plain. There are some things in the Bible that are predicted that are called the day of the Lord that have actually taken place already. You can find in history and you can find in the text itself that there is a direct referent that God is using when he uses the phrase the day of the Lord. But all day of the Lord language seems to be ultimately pointing towards some final cataclysm, some final return of God in vengeance and judgment and wrath. So the concept of the day of the Lord may include the increase of all these events until the final unfolding of God's direct intervention into human history. The Old Testament passages that refer to the day of the Lord often speak both of a near event and a faraway fulfillment, just like so much of Old Testament prophecy does. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is used 19 times in the Old Testament, five times in the New Testament, and you can relax, we're not going to look at all of them tonight. In the New Testament, we also have the phrase, the day of Christ, which appears three times, which is really interesting if you're trying to develop your Christology, or even your concept of the Trinity, because... You see places where the day of the Lord, which in the Hebrew is, is Yom Yahweh, and so it's a direct reference to God, Yahweh, Jehovah, and yet you see the fulfillment of it, the satisfaction of it, when Christ comes back in judgment and vengeance, evidence yet again internally that Christ is God, and so the fulfillment of the day of Yahweh is accomplished in the day of Christ. It is not a particular day. You know, it's not Tuesday, the Tuesday of the Lord. It can mean a period of time, and there are some theologians and commentators who believe that the phrase, the day of the Lord, is almost like a catch-all that describes the time from the beginning of the tribulation all the way through the millennium, reaching out to the establishment of the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and the age to come. So the day of the Lord is not 
specific enough in its language for us to be able to say, Day of the Lord, it starts exactly here, and it ends exactly here, and it has a runtime of this many hours. The Day of the Lord is a broader phrase than that. So I said a moment ago that there are Old Testament references to the Day of the Lord that we know for a fact have already been fulfilled, have already been accomplished in history. Let's take a look at a couple of those. Turn to Isaiah 13 first. Isaiah chapter 13, and we'll start at verse 6. And we'll read through to verse 22. Here is yet another description of the day of the Lord, but as you're going to see in the text, it has a direct reference to an event that has taken place in history. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them, and they will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Notice, by the way, in verse 8 there, a particular descriptor which is that all men will look like a woman in labor. This is language that Jeremiah uses. This is language that you find a couple different places to describe both the day of the Lord and the time of tribulation. Hold on to that thought. We're going to get back to it in a few minutes. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. It is cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. If that sounds familiar. You're also going to see that in the prophet Joel. You're going to see that same language picked up by Peter on the day of Pentecost when he recites from Joel 2. This is also language that Jesus is about to use in Matthew 24 to describe what it's going to be like when he returns. So there is going to be an event that is going to be a darkening of the stars, sun and moon not giving their light. Jesus adds that the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens against that black backdrop. But notice here again that Isaiah puts it within the context of the day of the Lord even though, as we're going to see, it is also descriptive of the time of tribulation. Hold on to that. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud, and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, and mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them. 
They will each turn to his own people, and each one flee to his own land. And anyone who is found will be thrust through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses plundered, and their wives ravished. Notice again the shift. It starts with God saying that this is going to be his wrath. It's another thing we're going to talk about as the night progresses. This is the day of the Lord, and it's the wrath of God, and it's his fury, and it's his anger. But at the same time, it is God executing that wrath through human beings, through the intermediate agency of warriors who are going to thrust people through with swords and dash little ones and plunder houses and ravish wives. And then verse 17 says, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men, and they will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So now you know that this is about the destruction of Babylon by the Medo-Persians. And yet God describes it as being day of the Lord stuff, because it is the day of God's vengeance. It is God's vengeance against Babylon, but he's accomplishing it by using the Medo-Persians, but it is still God in his sovereignty bringing about all this bloodshed and the killing of children and overthrowing Babylon the same way that he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So then he goes on at verse 20, it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there, but desert creatures will lie down there and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will also live there and shaggy goats will frolic there and hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will come soon, and her days will not be prolonged. We know that after the Medo-Persian conquering of Babylon, and then the Greeks coming in after that, that eventually the walls were left in disrepair. Eventually, Babylon was pretty much raised to the ground. In fact, if you go over there now in Iraq, there is an area where Babylon used to be. Some of you who are old like me might recall the days when Saddam Hussein was still leading in Iraq and uh, was planning to rebuild the hanging gardens of Babylon. I mean, he wanted to rule from Babylon because he saw himself as the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. But to this day, the walled city of Babylon continues to be gone from the physical planet, gone from history, just as God said. So now let's think about this whole thing. Let's think about everything we just read. Because Isaiah 13 and the prophecy of the day of the Lord that culminates in the Medo-Persians attacking Babylon, it reads, and it has an arc very much like both Isaiah and Ezekiel describing Satan. Ezekiel starts out by talking against the Chaldeans and talking against Tyre and Sidon. And next thing you know, he's describing Satan. He's made this leap where right in the middle of his prophecy against a king, He's talking past the king to the demon that drove him and says things like, you were in Eden and you were a shining cherub in heaven. And then he goes back to talking to the king again. And that's what we see here in this chapter where in the middle of the chapter, 
as God is saying that he's going to destroy Babylon, he's going to use the Medo-Persians, and he calls it the day of God's vengeance, God's wrath, day of the Lord language. But right in the middle of it, suddenly it's stuff about the stars of the heaven and their constellations aren't going to flash forth their light, and the sun's going to be dark when it rises, and the moon's not going to shed its light. Well, that didn't happen. And like I said, Joel's going to pick up that same language. And then Peter on the day of Pentecost is going to cite Joel and pick up that language. And then you get to the book of Revelation and you see that language yet again. So I think what's happening here is that in the middle of this prophecy of the day of the Lord, there is an immediate fulfillment, which is Babylon did fall to the Medo-Persians, just like God said. But in the midst of the day of the Lord prophecy, there is also this forward-looking to the ultimate culmination of what the day of the Lord is in God's fury when he is finally going to judge all the nations the way that he judged Babylon, the way that he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He's ultimately going to pour out his wrath, as we read, on the whole earth, on all the nations. But this particular prophecy from Isaiah has to do with a very particular judgment on a very particular people that is like a type and a foreshadow of what God is ultimately going to do when he pours out his wrath directly on all nations. It's the only way to read it. Otherwise, you have to say, and some writers do in fact say this, I think wrongly, but they say that in some way the stars of heaven and their constellations really did fall. The sun really did go dark, and the moon really didn't show its light when Babylon fell, and that all happened in some spiritual figurative way because Nebuchadnezzar was the great light, and then he fell, and then his family, and the throne, and you know, so the stars fell in that way. I don't think that's what's going on in this text. I think we have to look at the way that all prophecy works in the Bible, and prophecy in the Bible has that ability to just make big leaps from a child is born and a son is given to the government's going to be on his shoulders all in one sentence, even though those things are separated by thousands of years. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Before we leave this passage, I do want you to hold on to the fact, though, that Isaiah described the day of the Lord as people, men in anguish, writhing, holding their stomachs like a woman about to give birth, because that's a descriptor that's going to continue and going to be applied particularly to the time of great tribulation. And then also hold on to the fact that he uses human agency in order to accomplish his wrath. Turn to Ezekiel 30. Have I lost anybody yet? Okay. I'm going to give you a lot of information tonight, so I'm going to try to make it as plain as I can Chapter 30, starting at verse 1. The language is going to sound very familiar. This is God handing out judgments. Back in chapter 28, he talks about the regathering of Israel. When I gather the house of Israel from all the peoples among whom they are scattered, then I'll manifest my holiness in them, in the sight of all the nations, and then they will live in their land that I gave to my servant Jacob. That's all the end of chapter 28. In chapter 29, there's a judgment against Egypt. And then chapter 30 starts, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day 
Even the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. And a sword will come upon Egypt, and anguish will be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt. And they will take away her wealth, and her foundations are torn down. Ethiopia, Put, Lud, and all Arabia, Libya, and the peoples of the land that are in league will fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord, indeed, those who support Egypt will fall, and the pride of her power will come down from Migdal to Cyan. They shall fall within her by the sword, declares the Lord God, and they will be desolate in the midst of their desolated lands. And her cities will be in the midst of devastated cities. And they will know that I am the Lord when I set fire to Egypt and all her helpers are broken on that day. Messengers will go forth from me in ships to frighten secure Ethiopia and anguish will be on them as on the day of Egypt for behold it comes. Okay, this is all day of the Lord language. God said so. The day of the Lord is coming and it's coming soon. But who's it coming on? On Egypt in particular and northern Africa. That's where all those cities are that he has named, all those kingdoms. And so it's particular, but he also says it's coming on the nations. So it's coming on the Gentiles. It's coming on the Goyim. It's coming on those who are not Israelites. But it's also particular. It's also localized. It's also historic. This is something that has already occurred. And then notice that he uses human agency in verse 9. And on that day, messengers will go forth from me in ships to frighten secure Ethiopia. And anguish will be on them as on the day of Egypt. For behold, it comes. Thus says the Lord God, verse 10. I will also make the multitude of Egypt cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So this is about when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Egypt. And yet God refers to it as the day of the Lord because he's in control of it. He's in charge of it. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of the nations, will be brought in to destroy the land and they will draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. Moreover, I will make the Nile canals dry and sell the land into the hands of evil men, and I will make the land desolate and all that is in it by the hand of strangers. I, the Lord, have spoken. So you see it again and again. God says, I'm doing it. I'm going to do all this. I'm doing it. How? Via Nebuchadnezzar, via his armies, and through evil, ruthless people. Verse 13, thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis, main city in Egypt, and there will no longer be a prince in the land of Egypt, and I will put fear in the land of Egypt, and I will make Pathros desolate, set fire to Zoan, execute judgment on the thieves, and I will pour out my wrath on sin, that's the area of sin, not the thing sin, and the stronghold of Egypt, and I will cut off the multitude of Thebes, and I will set fire to Egypt, sin will writhe in anguish, Thebes will be breached, and Memphis will have distress daily. The young men of On and Pi Beseth will fall to the sword, and the women will go into captivity, and in Tehephnehes the day will be dark, 
and I will break there the yoke bars of Egypt, and then the pride of her power will cease in her, a cloud will cover her, and her daughters will go into captivity, and I will execute judgments on Egypt, and they will know that I am the Lord. So that's the summation of it. So he is going to execute judgment against Egypt. He is going to use Nebuchadnezzar and his armies to do it. This has actually happened in history. God called it the day of the Lord. That's my point. It's to help us understand the phraseology, day of the Lord. In his notes on the Bible, Barnes writes this. He says, that time, this is his description of the day of the Lord in general, doesn't have directly to do with Ezekiel. But he writes, that time is said to be God's day or the day of the Lord in which he does any new or rare or special thing, such as is the day of judgment or the day of vengeance. All judgment in time is an image of the judgment for eternity. The day of the Lord is then each, quote, day of vengeance in which God does to man according to his will and his just judgment, inflicting the punishment which men deserve, as man did to him in his day, manifoldly dishonoring him according to his own perverse will. So that day, the day of the Lord, is said to be, in many of these texts, at hand, the meaning being that it will come suddenly. Okay, so there's the first way for us to understand the day of the Lord concept. God calls his outpouring of judgment and vengeance the day of the Lord. It is a time when God intervenes directly in human history for the purpose of judgment or wrath or vengeance. And a couple of the events that he has called the day of the Lord are events that have already occurred in our history, even though they were prophetic when they were said. Turn to Joel 3. Find the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. From Ezekiel, you keep going forward toward the New Testament. You'll bump right into Joel. Joel 3 is God's judgment against Tyre and Sidon. And yet, in the midst of it, it's going to become typological. It's going to become a figure of the ultimate day of the Lord judgment at the end of time. He's going to do very much the same thing that Isaiah did and use very similar language. Joel 3, are we there? For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then I will enter into judgment with them there on the behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, and they have traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre? Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me, swiftly and speedily I will return your recompense on your head, since you have taken my silver and my gold 
and brought my precious treasures into your temples and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I am going to arouse them from their place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near and let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, thy mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people." and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And it will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to the water of the valley of Shittim. So, What you've got here is a prophecy against Tyre and Sidon because of the way that Tyre and Sidon have not only uh, abused Israelites, Judahites, but have also sold them and used them for slaves. And so God, in order to protect and defend his people Israel, is now prophesying judgment against Tyre and Sidon. And, of course, you know, we've talked about it several times here, that Tyre and Sidon were ultimately judged during the time of Alexander the Great. Tyre was a, was a rock island. Sidon was on the coastland. Nobody could get to Tyre. And by the time you could get there in ships or anything else, they could shoot down and sink your ships. And so Tyre was impregnable until Alexander the Great, who raised Sidon to the ground and then took all the rocks of Sidon and began throwing them into the sea And over the course of months and months and months, they built a causeway all the way to the island, and his army marched on the rock causeway and defeated Tyre. Okay, so the prophecy against Tyre and Sidon actually happened. When Joel cites it, he calls it the day of the Lord. He leaps, though, right from the punishment of Tyre and Sidon to day of the Lord language that includes the stars going out, the sun, the moon being darkened, all that kind of language that we saw with Isaiah. So, so what's happening here? How do we make sense of this stuff? Because we know that the sun and the moon did not go out when Babylon fell. And we know that the sun and the stars did not go out when Tyre and Sidon fell. Well, I think that what we're seeing again is this concept of the day of the Lord being applied to something 
historic, something that has already happened, something that they were able to witness right then and there. But then the prophets make that leap into describing the ultimate day of the Lord so that all of these kingdoms that are falling at the hand of God through human agency that God takes credit for, that God calls the day of the Lord and time of his judgment, those things are all foreshadows that are leading toward the ultimate day of the Lord when God himself is going to pour out judgment and vengeance. That's still yet to come. And I think that's what's happening here because otherwise you have to allegorize like mad and say that the stars did go out, Tyre and Sidon, when they fell, somehow. But I don't uh, agree with that kind of thinking. I think the only way to make sense of what's happening here is to recognize that this is how the prophets work, where they would see something that was immediate to them, and then in the midst of the prophecy would also include something that was out into the distance, to the end, to the latter days. Make sense so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. So now this is where it's going to get a little more um, controversial. Turn to Zephaniah. If you're in Amos, keep going. The end of Joel puts you in Amos, so just keep going past Amos. Past Obadiah and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk. And then you'll bump right into Zephaniah. We're going to be in Zephaniah chapter 1. Here's my controversial statement. I'll make the statement and then I'll prove it to you. I do contend that the day of the Lord and the time of the great tribulation are probably synonymous. At very least, they overlap because the events that make up the great tribulation and the events that make up the day of the Lord are described the same way. The same descriptors are used for them. The sun and moon going dark and the stars going dark. Sun and moon not giving their light. That's used to describe the day of the Lord. It's also used to describe the great tribulation. People walking around holding their sides like a woman giving birth. Uh, That's why I pointed it out in Isaiah and said, hold on to that because Jeremiah uses that same language to describe the time of Jacob's trouble, which Jesus picks up as the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. So here's what I can say categorically. It is impossible from the Bible to create distinction between the time of tribulation and the day of the Lord. It is impossible to say, well, the the tribulation starts here and ends here, and then the day of the Lord begins, and it goes to here. The two cannot be divided that way biblically. Now, there are systems that do that. There are eschatologies that do that, but the Bible doesn't do it. Here, I'll show you. Uh, The time of tribulation is a time of trouble. It's a time of distress, depending on your translation. When we read it a couple weeks ago, the various different phrases that are used, Daniel's description of a time of trouble, such as never was, ever would be again, but everyone whose name is written in the book will be delivered through it. Jeremiah's description, which we'll look at in just a moment. Jesus' description of a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. The different translations, some would say time of trouble, some said tribulation, some said time of distress. Starting in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. Zephaniah. Zephaniah, yes. We'll wait for you. 
Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14 says, near is the great day of the Lord. Okay, so we're talking about the day of the Lord, same language. Near and coming very quickly. Listen to the day of the Lord, or listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. In verse 15, he gives us several descriptors, several synonymous terms that all describe the day of the Lord. A day of wrath. Okay, we would agree with that. The day of the Lord is a day of wrath. We get that. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. It's the exact same word that Jeremiah uses to describe the time of trouble. And so the time of trouble and the day of the Lord are both being used. Phraseology are being used synonymously here in Zephaniah. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, so now the day of the Lord is so bad that he's going to make a complete end of the inhabitants of the earth. So this is quite expansive. This is more than just Babylon. This is more than just Egypt. This is a prophecy of the day of the Lord in everything that we can imagine it to be, except that in describing this day of the Lord event, this final terrible wrath of God, the day of the Lord's wrath, it's even called, in that descriptor, he also calls it the day of trouble, the day of tribulation. The language is impossible to divide. The descriptors, time of trouble, day of tribulation, day of the Lord, day of God's wrath, all run together. Here, I'll show you another one. Do you want to see another one? Yeah, okay, I'll show you another one. <laughs> I, was, I actually got a response. I was surprised. Somebody read 1 Thessalonians 5.2. The rest of us are going to go to Jeremiah. Don't go to Jeremiah. Just listen. I'll read it to you. But 1 Thessalonians 5.2. Somebody go there. Who's got it? 1 Thessalonians 5.2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, so he's describing the day of the Lord. So read 1 Thessalonians 5.2 and 3 for us. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Okay, my point in bringing this up is that Paul is picking up Jeremiah's language. Jeremiah applies this language to the time of Jacob's trouble. And yet Paul picks it up and says, this is the day of the Lord. In Paul's mind, day of the Lord, time of Jacob's trouble can be described exactly the same way. The events are identical. Here's Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 8. 
the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard the sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. How do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have their faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, and there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off his neck and will tear off their bonds, and the strangers will no longer make them slaves, for they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up to them. So you can see why they were anxiously anticipating, looking forward to the day of the Lord, which is why Amos would ask the question, why are you looking forward to it? It's a time of trouble. It's a bad thing. But what I want you to see is that Jeremiah and Isaiah use a description of the day of the Lord that is all men walking around with their hands in their stomach like women in labor pains. Paul picks up that same language and uses it to describe the day of the Lord. The parallels just keep coming and coming. The only point I'm trying to make is that the day of the Lord and the time of great tribulation are described the same way in the Bible. So I argue that they at least are overlapping events. What you can't do is distinguish one from the other and say one starts here, and then the other is here, and they're separate events. Notice then also, though, since on Sunday mornings we're in Matthew 24, you'll notice that Jesus describes a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, and includes this idea of the sun, the moon being darkened, the stars going out, and he never mentions the day of the Lord. But he mentions a time of trouble such as never would be again, and then uses the same language to describe it, that Joel uses to describe the day of the Lord, or that Isaiah used to describe the day of the Lord. He uses it to describe the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. You get that? Okay. So let's take a look at what the Old Testament says will characterize the day of the Lord. I'll just read this off to you. And uh, anybody who wants my notes, rather than trying to keep track of all this, I'll throw them on my uh, blog sometime late tonight, and if you want to pull them down and go through them, you can. Isaiah 2.12 calls it a day of reckoning. Isaiah 2.13-17 calls it a day of judgment. Isaiah 13.9 calls it a day cruel with fury and burning anger. Isaiah 13.6 and Joel 1.15 calls it a day of destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 22.5 calls it a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion. Jeremiah 46.10 calls it a day of vengeance. Jeremiah 46.10, a day that belongs to the Lord God of hosts. Ezekiel 7.7 calls it a day of tumult. Ezekiel 7.10 and Ezekiel 33 calls it a day of doom. It's a day of battle in Ezekiel 13.5 and Zechariah 14.3. It's a day of clouds in Ezekiel 30 verse 3. It's a day of judgment for Egypt. In Ezekiel 30, verse 19, it is a day of gloom and darkness in Joel 2, 2, Amos 5, 18, 
and uh, Amos 5.20. We saw both of those. And again, in Amos 8.9, it's going to come up again. It's called a day that is great and awesome in Joel 2.11 and 3.1. It's a day when the sun and the moon grow dark. We saw that in Joel 3.15 and plenty of other places like Isaiah and Matthew and Peter quoting it on the day of Pentecost. It's a day when justice is dealt out, Obadiah 15. It's a day of punishment, Zephaniah 1.8. It is the day of the Lord's anger in Zephaniah 2.23. And it is a day that is unique, according to Zechariah 14.7. Those are all descriptors of the day of the Lord. You'll notice that there's no happy, jolly descriptions. You'll notice that there's no bluebirds, no rainbows. That it is obviously a time of terrible trouble and a time of vengeance. Interesting, 2 Peter 3.10, if anybody wants to look that up, 2 Peter 3.10, Peter describes it even beyond the time that we would classically call the time of tribulation or the period of time that we would call Daniel 70 weeks. He carries the concept of the day of the Lord out past the millennium to the time when God destroys the heavens and the earth and burns the planet in order to start over with a new heavens and a new earth. Peter carries it all the way out to there, which is why I say that when we say the phrase day of the Lord, it reaches all the way back into the Old Testament judgments, all the way back to Babylon that time, day of the Lord. When we talk about the eschatological time of trouble such as never was, that falls under the category of day of the Lord. Peter's now going to take it past the millennium to the destruction of the planet, day of the Lord. So the phrase day of the Lord seems to be an expression of God's righteous judgment and vengeance interceding on time, but it's not one particular singular event, which is the way it's far too often thought of. When people say the day of the Lord, they only think of that final eschatological cataclysmic event. But in the Bible, it's several different examples of God intervening into human history in order to specifically pour out his vengeance, his judgment. Who's got 2 Peter 3.10? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great voice, and the elements shall melt the, frivol- the fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Okay, well, that's not something that happens during Daniel's 70th week because we know that after Daniel's 70th week, there's a time of cleanup and then there's the millennial kingdom. So he just took the day of the Lord and cast it all the way out to when the earth and the heavens are burned with a fervent heat and the new heavens and the new earth. That's all day of the Lord stuff according to the Bible. Also, by the way, Notice the phrase that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. This is what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. This is also what Peter says, that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. The reason it's important to recognize that is that there was a book, a rapture book, written, gosh, 30, 40 years ago, called A Thief in the Night, which postulated that, you know, the secret rapture was going to occur like a thief in the night. And nowhere in the Bible is there a direct reference to the rapture as being a thief in the night event. But the day of the Lord, very thief in the night. We're about to see that in Matthew 24. 
In fact, we'll get to it this Sunday where Jesus says that people are going to be buying, selling, trading, going about their life. It's going to be like Noah. It's going to be like the day of Sodom and Gomorrah. People just doing their thing and sudden destruction comes on them like a thief in the night, something they're not expecting. So whenever you hear the phrase thief in the night, recognize that as being a judgment verse. That's not a rapture reference. Got that? Okay. Uh, as I said, Joel 2, 28 to 32 is cited by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Somebody look that up. Let's read that as well. And then we're going to go to the very last book of the Old Testament. So somebody look up Joel 2, 28 to 32 and read that for us. Okay, Joel 2, 28 to 32. Who's got that? I got it. You got it? Read it nice and loud because you're in the back of the room. And you're reading from your phone, you techno wizard, you. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants. I will pour out my spirit for those days. I will display wonders in the sky, on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will turn into, dar into darkness and the moon into blood, and the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors, whom the Lord calls. Very good. So that is clearly a day of the Lord passage. Peter picks it up on the day of Pentecost in order to explain the fact that the Spirit is being poured out and that these people are all speaking in tongues and that they're not drunk as the leaders in Jerusalem thought. And Peter continues to cite the whole passage, which includes the sun and the moon being darkened, like you just read, stars not giving their light. That didn't happen at Pentecost. And so I think Peter was doing the same thing that all the prophets do. He was saying, this right now is the fulfillment of this part of the text. And that guarantees that the whole rest of the text is coming true too. And he cited it accurately. So there is still a time coming where the sun and the moon are going to go dark and the stars are going to go dark. And Jesus said that at that time, the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens. That hasn't happened yet. But that's all day of the Lord's stuff. Malachi 4. Everybody go there. It's the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. If you want to find it, just go to Matthew 1 and go back a page. Very short chapter. It's only six verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from a stall. And you will tread down the wicked... For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. 
Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So the Old Testament ends, at least in our modern versions of the Old Testament, ends with the promise that Elijah comes first before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What does that tell us? Well, that tells us that the previous things that happened in history, whether we're talking about Egypt, whether we're talking about Babylon, those things that God called the day of the Lord, that he accomplished through human agency and human armies, those weren't the ultimate day of the Lord because the Old Testament ends with a promise of the return of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so then you get into the New Testament, and Paul picks it up and has to tell the Thessalonians that they're not in the day of the Lord yet. And then he describes the day of the Lord. Peter, as I said, at Pentecost, describes what Joel describes, this time of conflagration, this day of the Lord stuff that's still to come. So there is an ultimate day of the Lord yet to come in human history that hasn't happened yet. And I believe that it will be worse than any of the foreshadow day of the Lord events. And I believe that because Jeremiah, Daniel, and Jesus himself said that it will be worse than anything that's ever happened on the planet. I think part of the reason that it will be worse than anything is exactly what we read last week out of Amos because God said, prepare to meet your God. Even though it's going to start through human agency, even though there's going to be this ten-nation confederation, even though there's going to be the little horn, and even though they're going to attack Israel, and God, same way he worked in Babylon, in Egypt, anywhere else, is going to use those armies in order to correct Israel, the ultimate end of it is going to be the return of Christ, who comes back with a two-edged sword out of his mouth, the Armageddon, the destruction, blood to the bridles of the horses, and a time of unbelievable death and warfare that is a time of judgment and a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. But notice that they all blend together. It's impossible to separate these events and say, part of this is the tribulation, part of this is the day of the Lord. They all are described and all overlap time and time again. I'll just read this to you real quick. Jeremiah 30, 23 and 24 says, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. That's what Jeremiah said. So he took that too, cast it out into the latter days. So there is an ultimate day of the Lord coming. Exactly when it starts, I don't know. I know that there's a seven-year peace pact coming somewhere that I assume is the beginning of, the, of Daniel's 70th week. I know that there's a three-and-a-half-year period, and at three-and-a-half years, he's going to cut off the sacrifice and the oblations. He's going to seek to change times. He's going to set up the abomination of desolation, and then it's time for everybody who's in Judea to run and all that stuff. 
and there's going to be a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And that's going to be in there somewhere as part of it, or maybe all that is it, and it culminates in Christ coming back and the Armageddon. All of that, though, is part of the day of the Lord. And as we saw from Peter, the millennium even seems to include the day of the Lord because it stretches all the way out to the new heavens, the new earth, and the establishment of the new Jerusalem. Peter says, that's day of the Lord. So again, I say, if we're going to try to fight for a definition of the day of the Lord, we have to say, it's those times when God directly intervenes in human history to pour out judgment. It always seems to have a direct correlation to his people Israel. Its purpose is always the correction and readjustment and ultimate reestablishment of Israel. And the events in the past that have been called the day of the Lord seem to be precursors, foreshadows of the ultimate day of the Lord, which is yet to come. And what we know for certain is it's really bad and you don't want to be there. Make sense? So there's the day of the Lord stuff. Now, in my notes, I also have the fact that God uses human means to execute his wrath. And I have several passages here where like the Assyrians and Babylonian captivities done through human agency are directly referred to as the wrath of God because one of the phrases that is used for the day of the Lord is the wrath of God, the day of God's wrath. And so sometimes we get this notion that it can only be the day of God's wrath if it's directly from God. And yet I've got one, two, three, four, five... Six, seven, eight passages here that we just won't go into tonight, but if you pull up the notes, you'll know why these are here. These passages are all places where God uses human armies and human agencies and specifically calls it his wrath. It's his wrath, but humans do it, and he controls it. And so when we talk about the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord's wrath, I have no problem with the notion that he's going to have a ten-nation confederation where there's going to be an evil king, the Antichrist, the little horn, through whom he is going to execute his wrath because we have lots and lots of history of that already. Questions? No? We're good? All right, good. I have a kind of an elementary question. Okay. When learning prophecy, how can someone know when something spoken about is literal or symbolic? Because a lot of prophecy is cloaked in symbolism. So how do you know when to take it literally? Like you say the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, How do you know those are, that's the literal sun and the literal moon and the literal stars? When other things in prophecy aren't, they're not always interpreted, are they? No, they're not always interpreted, but there are usually enough interpretations to give you good guidance. When I say that we read the Bible literally, what I mean by that is that we don't have the the fishing license to go allegorizing everything kind of willy-nilly. When you get to the book of Revelation, the reason that people often allegorize it is they say, well, it's full of symbols. And that's true. And when you read the Bible literally, quote-unquote literally, that's why I call it face value reading, you recognize a symbol when you see one. We recognize a metaphor when we see one. The example that I use all the time is when Jesus said that he's a door. 
we don't think he meant literally that he was a piece of wood with a handle with a we get the metaphor we understand a simile when we see one but when you get to the book of revelation and there's all these symbols fully 90% if not higher of the symbols in the book of revelation are found other places in the bible already and are found in a context that's understandable how do we know when something is literal I think everything in the Bible needs to be read literally, but at the same time, in order to understand or interpret something like sun, moon, stars, like you said, I think the fact that Jesus places his return and the sign of his return in the heavens, in the midst of the darkness of the sun, moon, stars, if the sun, moon, stars, darkened thing isn't literal, then either is the return of Christ. And since I believe in a literal return of Christ, and he placed it in the midst of those heavenly things, then I have to say, well, he seemed to think it was quite literal. So I'm going to go with literal. Does that make sense? You're nodding, but they can't hear you nod. Yeah. This kind of Bible study, it's not lightweight. It takes time, takes effort, takes a lot of cross-referencing, like I tried to show tonight. It takes a whole lot of building up the evidence and then letting the evidence force you into a conclusion. And I think far too often what happens is people start with their conclusions and they go to the Bible to look for evidence to support their conclusion. And what I was trying to do tonight was say, here's all the evidence. Now what conclusion can you draw from it? And there are things that you just can't draw from it. But there are things that you definitely can. Yeah? Okay, then. That was a very good question. Anything else? Would you say that in the last 2,000 years since Christ has, other than, I guess, 70 AD could have been a day of the Lord when the uh, was destroyed, um, has there been a breath poured out of the Lord experience? I would say not like what we read in the Old Testament for the particular reason that the prophecies of the Old Testament, which stop 400 years before Jesus gets on the planet, all have to do with Judah and Israel. And once God scattered Israel and left all those prophecies in place that he would restore Israel, there's no more reason for these kind of prophecies that have to do with gathered national Israel, because that's already laid out. That's in place. This is what I'm going to do. But there is no national Israel for God to defend or for God to punish. And since that's what all of these day of the Lord things have to do with, they all have Israel at their center, national Israel, and they all have to do with Israel ultimately being regathered after being scattered among all the nations. So in the last 2,000 years, I would say everything that has happened in human history is clearly and obviously God's divine plan, and he is sovereign over all the things that have happened, and nations have risen up and fallen, but they haven't had a direct effect on national Israel living in Canaan. And so that makes them different than the prophecies of the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I don't. I would say no, that there hasn't been any wrath poured out on the people of the earth. Oh, I think I just understood your question. 
Yes, I would agree with you that all the prophecies in the Old Testament of a time of wrath coming hasn't happened yet. Is that what you're getting at? I may have over-explained my answer. No, you but, did a good job. I just want to make sure that it's clear that, you know, because when I think about what Paul is doing in, in, in comforting the Thessalonians, yeah. so that they don't think that they're in the middle of it. And he says, no, you're, you're not in the middle of it. This is, and then he talks about the thief in the night. And it right. will not come on you as a thief in the night. You will see it coming. You'll see the signs. Right. Uh, all uh, reassurance to the church, because that's and the Gentile right. church in particular. So yeah. That day will not come on you as a thief because you're not in the dark. You're in the light. Right. Yeah, great reassurance. But I think with all the language that is used to describe that time of trouble, no, I don't think that's happened yet. I think we're waiting on that. That's in the future somewhere still. Anything else? Well, all right then. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.